0: This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network. Some of the great blessings of our church are those select individuals who have been canonized saints or perhaps are on the road to sainthood with the titles of Blessed or Venerable, such as Blessed Mother Teresa as just one example. These saints and holy people are treasures of the faith and earn their honors by the lives they led and their dedication to Almighty God. And the world is a better place because they were here. The stories of their lives provides beautiful testimonies that are like road maps to heaven. And the stories of their lives are as varied as the sands of the sea. And yet each in their own way is a blueprint for us to follow. If I were to ask you to name five of your favorite saints, my guess is that 99 out of a 100 would include St. Francis of Assisi and St. Therese, the little flower, even though their lives were so different other than their love of God. And, of course, the accomplishments of Francis are legend, and the Franciscans are still busy doing his work. But what about the little flower, St. Therese? She lived her life quietly in the convent, almost unnoticed, and yet she is known and loved worldwide by not only her simplicity, but her desire to be a saint by saying yes to whatever God asks of her and to serve him in her little way. We know most of her innermost thoughts, words, and deeds from her own pen in the autobiography her superiors in the convent ordered her to write, The Story of a Soul. The life of little Therese Martin, who, when she was called home to heaven at the tender age of 24, was really an unknown sister named Therese of the child Jesus of the Holy Face. And little by little, in her own words, those of her immediate family and the observations of the sisters with whom she'd lived in the convent, the real story of the little flower blossomed into sainthood. But first, a word about her parents. Sometimes we don't realize the importance of our actions and deeds on the lives of our children, what they see and what they hear. And such was the case of Therese. Her parents, Louis and Marie, were very religious, and their lives and examples were so extraordinary that they both have been beatified and bear the titles Blessed Louis of lassou and Blessed Marie of lassou And it's important to mention, too, that both Louis and Marie had desired to enter religious life themselves, but were refused. The convent questioned Marie's actual vocation, and Louis was denied his wish to be a monk for probably about the same reason. But that's another story for another time. Therese was born on January 2, 1873, in France. She was the youngest of five surviving children, all girls. There were Marie, Pauline, Leonie, Celine, and Therese. Their mother, Marie, was a lace maker, while her father started as a watchmaker, but gave that up to assist his wife, whose business was so successful that he became, in effect, the manager of her shop. Unfortunately, Marie died when Therese was just four years old, so Louis sold the shop and moved to Le where her two older sisters took turns watching over Therese as a sort of substitute mother. They provided loving care for her as well as being good examples as they both took care in fostering her early religious training. As time passed, each of the sisters entered the Carmelite cloister that was located in Lesseux. Pauline entered the convent when Therese was nine years old, and her other older sister Marie entered the convent when Therese was in her teens. In Therese's early years, she was undoubtedly pampered and rather spoiled, being the baby of the family. But as the years passed, she would mature and become quite serious. Her education was provided at the Benedictine Abbey in the Sioux. While the Carmelite monastery was cloistered, Therese's eyes and dreams were being focused on joining the order and becoming a sister— Although she was only 14 years old, she was well aware of what life would be like in the cloister, that it would be uneventful with her hours filled with prayer and hard work. But that didn't matter. It was her dream to become a Carmelite. And then came Christmas, still in her 14th year now a custom at that time was for the young children to leave their shoes by the hearth on christmas eve and the parents would fill them with gifts well therese and her sister celine had returned from midnight mass and Celine, not wanting Therese to grow up too fast, had gathered her shoes and toys and put them in as uh, Therese's shoes by the hearth. And as she and Celine came home and headed for the stairs, their father growled, "That's the last time we'll have to do this kind of thing." Now, normally, this would have set Therese to tears, and she would have taken it as a personal insult. But the dear tears didn't start. Christmas Mass had entered her heart, and she had received Jesus, who made her more considerate of her father's feelings than her own. It didn't bother her, and and she didn't want to hurt her father's feelings. She was more concerned with him than herself. At 14, she was suddenly strong in spirit and even more determined to enter the Carmel Monastery and felt an inward outpouring of grace. One way or another, she would enter the monastery where she could express her love for Jesus and devote her life to praying for sinners and those whose souls were in danger of everlasting hell. She would later refer to this as her Christmas conversion. Therese renewed her request to enter the monastery, but again was refused because of her age. Perhaps one of the main reasons for her desire to enter the convent was the result of her earlier years and the training that her father himself had taught her about the importance of the faith and of the church. He taught not just by words, but by example." she learned the importance and the graces that could be received by helping the poor and the less fortunate. When they were together and would see someone in financial distress, Teresa's father would give her the money or whatever was needed so that she would be able to have the honor herself of helping them. And when money may not have been the need, she was taught that prayers would help with the greatest of needs, and she would constantly offer up her prayers for others. So I suppose it was just natural that she would wish to join her two sisters in the convent. Oh, but then there was that problem of her age. Her need to become a nun was becoming more intense when she saw God's handiwork everywhere around her. She loved the beauty of the world and of nature with the knowledge that everything was connected to God and his loving care. And just perhaps the real secret was how we here on earth should treat with respect and honor all that God had created for us. She had an intuition, no doubt from on high, that her prayers and actions were important. At one point, she was distressed hearing about a vicious murderer named Panzini who was found guilty and sentenced to death for his crimes. He had no remorse, he blasphemed, he cursed at the priests, he was vicious, arrogant, and unrepentful. Therese was distressed at what would happen to his soul, and even at such a trying age, she prayed constantly for his soul and offered up many little sacrifices for his conversion. She prayed day and night, calling on the saints for their help too, But as the execution day approached, he refused to even go to confession. But Therese prayed on. Her prayers were answered in his last moments on earth when he asked for a crucifix and kissed it. And she knew that with prayers and sacrifices anything was possible, even her little ways of prayer and offerings. In her late fourteenth year, she persuaded her father to take her to see the local bishop, and, trying to look older and wiser, she implored his help in entering the convent. She told him that from the age of three she wanted to become a sister. Of course, the bishop was reluctant. He was impressed at her age, but that was the problem. Her father, knowing of the intensity of her desire, told the bishop he would take her to Rome, where Perhaps the Pope would give his permission. Well, the bishop was quite impressed. He wasn't used to seeing a parent that eager to help a child enter the convent. And, and not long afterwards, Therese, her father, and Celine were in the Eternal City, seeing all the beautiful sights and shrines, including a fragment of the true cross. They were to join a group at an audience of pope, the, uh, to see the Pope, but were told not to speak. Pope Leo the Thirteenth entered, gave his blessings and said Mass, and later the group one by one approached the Holy Father, was introduced, and received the papal blessing, being asked again and reminded to refrain from speaking, and all obeyed, that is, all obeyed except Therese, who kneeling placed her hands on the Pope's knees, asking for his permission to become a Carmelite, telling him the superiors in the convent would obey if he said yes. Well, his answer was simple. He said, Well, my child, you shall enter if it be God's will. Still holding onto the Pope's knees, the papal guards had to physically move her away she was in tears. Returning home, Therese and her father met again with their sister and the prioress of the Carmelites, who repeated that no girl her age had ever entered their convent. But on January 1st, 1888, the day before Therese's 15th birthday, she received a letter from the bishop that he had given his permission for Therese to enter the convent. Torrents of tears, tears of joy streamed down her cheeks. God had been listening. Her sister Leone had entered another convent but returned home. She cautioned Therese that convent life was not easy, but Therese was adamant that she wanted to give her life to God to save souls. Her only concern was that her father, now 65 and in poor health, would miss her, but his encouragement only made her more happy to become a bride of Christ. Everything in the monastery delighted her. She was taken to a cell that was plain, bare, and with only the very basics of necessities, quite different from the comforts of home. But Therese was overjoyed with its simplicity, and it seemed more grand to her than the the richest of any mansion. And, of course, entering the convent was the beginning of a new life and a new name. She was to be known as Sister Therese of the Child Jesus and the Holy Face. Incidentally, the devotion to the Holy Face of Jesus was started by another Carmelite nun in 1844, and this devotion was introduced to Therese by her own sister Pauline, now Sister Agnes of Jesus. She had a clear picture of her own vocation, While there were those who would travel the world bringing the word of God with them, establishing new religious orders, as well as a myriad of other wonderful activities so necessary in spreading the faith to the service of God, Therese recognized all these needs but felt that it was not God's will for her to be a world leader or to accomplish heroic deeds and the like but rather she could serve him best in her own little way to achieve the holiness she desired. She wrote, Love proves itself by deeds. So how am I to show my love? Great deeds are forbidden me. The only way I can prove my love is by scattering flowers, and these flowers are every little sacrifice, every glance and word, and the doing of the least actions for love. These thoughts, these actions, were to be, in her own words, her little ways. In her autobiography that her superiors ordered her to write, she said, when she recognized something special in her, I, I believe that this passage sums it up best in, in her own words that she had written. She said, Sometimes when I read spiritual treatises in which perfection is shown with a thousand obstacles in the way and a host of illusions round about it, my poor little mind soon grows weary. I close the book which leaves my head splitting and my heart parched, and I take the Holy Scripture. That all seems luminous. A single word opens up infinite horizons to my soul. Perfection seems easy. I see that it is enough to realize one's nothingness and gives oneself wholly, like a child, into the arms of the good God leaving to great souls, great minds, the fine books I cannot understand. I rejoice to be little, because only children and those who are like them will be admitted to the heavenly banquet. The end of her quote. Sometimes in the world of today, I believe we become somewhat jaded in feeling that in order to be a success or to achieve a degree of greatness, we have to outdo our neighbors. We have to seek the impossible dream. I think she has sent us a message just to be ourselves and to be satisfied in pleasing God in our simplicity. Really, what's more important than that? So, in the reality of her life in the cloister, she actually lived a life of obscurity, virtually unknown to those of the outside world apart from her family. For nine years, she would devote herself to achieving the perfection of a spiritual way of life, living every day and doing every task no matter how small, but achieving perfection in a spiritual way of life for the love of God, of Jesus, with the continuing small acts of charity for others. This would also include the complete acceptance of pain and suffering as part of her gift to the world and for the pain and the suffering that Christ experienced for for you and for me. Although she lived a life of obscurity, the sanctity which she lived could not be overlooked by her superiors, even though she practiced austerity and silence, trying to avoid calling any attention to herself. Her greatest unhappiness would result in her sacrifices and other offerings to be recognized. But her superiors, including her own sister, could not help but notice the very rare flower they had in their midst, and as I mentioned it earlier, she was ordered to write her own autobiography. She began the work in 1895, starting with her earliest memories of her childhood, and later wrote the second part as a part of memories of her life as a Carmelite. It must be mentioned that Therese was never what we might call a hardy person. Even as a child, she had a number of serious physical problems, including fainting and other conditions that greatly concerned her family. Many of the physical difficulties would remain with her, which she hid as best as she could, rather than call attention to herself or create problems for the other sisters. She continued to be concerned how she could achieve holiness in the life she was leading in the convent. She would have to increase her efforts. She didn't want to be just good. She wanted to surrender her life so completely to God that she would indeed be a saint. Instead of being presumptuous in her desire for sainthood, she was troubled by what she perceived to be her own inadequacy. She would write in her autobiography, and I quote, "'Unfortunately, when I have compared myself with the saints, "'I have always found that there is the same difference "'between the saints and me "'as there is between a mountain and a grain of sand. "'God would not make me wish for something impossible, "'and so, in spite of my littleness, "'I can aim at being a saint. "'It is impossible for me to grow bigger.' So I put up with myself as I am with all my countless faults, but I will look for some means of going to heaven by a little way which is very short and very straight, a little way that it is quite new. Perhaps that was the inspiration for, for writing, My Vocation is Love. She had a complete understanding of prayer and sacrifice and considered them her invincible weapons. She would write all her thoughts and events of her life as she saw them, and one must remember that she was just 22 years old when she was asked to write her autobiography. She would look on the great saints of the church, like Catherine of Siena and Joan of Arc, marveling at their strengths and accomplishments, and then looking at the reality of her surroundings. She understood clearly in her mind that life in her convent was comprised of prayer and service, and that her life and deeds were too small to notice. Perhaps in her mind she did not realize that in God's eyes her little ways were her gifts of love that went straight to the altar of God. She was like a child wanting favor with her father even though he may be out of sight. Teresa's soul could not see Jesus, but her love found him in every deed she undertook. She seemed to be the most cheerful nun in the convent, no matter how badly she may have felt. She would stop and pick up a pin on the floor to save someone else having to pick it up. The food may have been terrible, but she ate it without a thought. Someone may have spoken sharply to her, but she would smile and nod in return. No matter how tired she may have been, she never showed the slightest evidence of fatigue. One day another sister splashed water on her by accident, and she appeared not to notice. And no matter how hot it was when she was working, and no matter how the sweat may have run down her cheeks, she never brushed it off, lest it looked like she was working too hard. And when she was terribly upset by one thing or another, she would never cry or frown. She would look pleasant and just smile. One time another sister accidentally ran a sharp pin into her shoulder, and she completely ignored it rather than make the other sister embarrassed or sad. With all that she had been through, she was interested only in pleasing God in her small way. Later, someone else was appointed to the job of sacristan, and it was suggested that since it appeared Therese had a talent for art, that she was assigned the job of painting holy cards and religious work, which were admired by the whole community and she was later recognized for an ability to put words together beautifully, and her ability to express her thoughts and feelings were clear and evident and and straight from the heart. She took little note of these accolades because if she were given her choice, she would choose to be a missionary. In 1896, she coughed up blood but told no one lest they would feel sorry for her and treat her differently. So she kept this to herself and kept writing in her autobiography. Because of her cheerfulness, perhaps no one really noticed that her health was deteriorating, most likely because she never exhibited feeling bad, so not to be the victim of sympathy. But on Good Friday morning in 1896, she started bleeding from the mouth. She had developed tuberculosis and her condition had deteriorated. But she continued writing in her autobiography. In July of 1897 she started coughing up large amounts of blood and was moved into the infirmary. Her medical condition was terminal tuberculosis, and through all her misery she maintained her happy and contented outward appearance so beautifully that some, seeing her so cheerful, so cheerfully pleasant at all times that they felt she was just pretending to be sick her pain was so intense that she confided that if she were not for her faith she would probably have taken her own life her one consolation would be the completion of her book in the hope that someone would read it and would it would help them come closer to god Little did she know that the book would be read by millions of people throughout the entire world, and they could learn how to please God in ways that everyone could do. Her condition continued to worsen with painful slowness, and on the 25th of August, in the throes of intense pain, she said, "'I am making a terrible fuss, but I don't want to suffer less,' and thirst was added to her afflictions." she remembered Jesus's words from the cross, I thirst. So in his honor, when she was offered ice water, she said, oh, how I want this. But no, not a drop. My tongue is not parched enough. A few days later, she whispered, the cup is full to the brim. Around 5 p.m. on September 30, 1897, the mother superior was alone with Therese and she noticed a rapid change in her appearance. The superior rang the bell and all the nuns hurried to her bedside. Therese whispered, "'Isn't it the end yet? "'I don't want to cut short my suffering.' She turned to her crucifix and said, "'I love him. O oh God, I love you.' As the nuns knelt around her bedside, Therese looked upward with her eyes shining and seemed to be in ecstasy. And then she closed her eyes forever about 7.20 p.m. She was only 24 years old. And her book, The Story of Her Life, The Story of a Soul, is still one of the best-selling books in the world. She was beatified by Pope Pius XI in 1923, and two years later, after the necessary approved miracles, was canonized a saint. And because of the impact of her writings and holiness, it, because of all of this had such a tremendous effect on people worldwide, Pope John Paul II declared St. Therese the Little Flower a doctor of the church, joining only 32 other saints to be recognized with this honor in the history of the church. Perhaps her quiet life and little way is even more important to us, you and me, and this time when God is being pushed further and further toward the back seat. She put it so well, It is in your arms, Jesus, that are the lift to carry me to heaven. And there is no need for me to grow up. I must stay little and become less and less. I will let fall from heaven a shower of roses. What can we learn from her? Well, that's up to us. She has shown that we don't have to move mountains or conquer worlds to please God. We can honor Him in our own little ways. When life isn't easy and the road seems difficult, we can just follow the example of St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower who added so many blooms for us in the Garden of Heaven. This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network.